I think many of you may relate to this common household occurrence. You maybe have uh, read a book that's inspiring or uh, you've been thinking through something and you're lost in your thoughts. And as you walk down the hall thinking those deep thoughts, you step on a piece of Lego. <laughs> what happens when you step on that piece of Lego? Your deep thoughts, your profound emotions, they all go out the window because your foot is screaming in pain and you leap back and all you can think about now is not deep thoughts. All you can think about is what your body's telling you. I'm in pain. That's a common occurrence, but we tend to forget its deep significance. The deep significance of feeling physical pain is a reminder that our bodies really matter. And whenever we get too lost in the clouds thinking about deeper things according to what we think, We, in fact, realize that we are spirits embodied, which means to say that God has given us not only souls and spirits, he has given to us bodies, and our bodies matter. I'd like to suggest to you that our gospel lesson today is a reminder and a really strong way that Luke underlines how important our bodies are in Christian understanding. But what we see in our gospel lesson today is not just Jesus arising to tell important things to his disciples, What we find here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, is Jesus, the risen Jesus, appearing before his disciples to show them not only his teaching, but also to show them his risen body. I'd like to spend some time today talking about why that's so significant that Jesus is raised as a body, and why it's important for us in our modern world today to hold on to it. Now, in a lot of ways, it probably seems obvious reading this Gospel, uh, and it hints at it, one of the reasons why Jesus shows them his body is risen because he gets there in the middle of this room, locked doors, disciples afraid because they're afraid maybe the authorities who killed Jesus might do the same to them. And Jesus appears despite having that locked door. The gospel tells us they were freaked out. I don't know if those are the exact words, but they were freaked out because they thought Jesus was a ghost. Here's a man they saw killed violently, but here he is standing in their midst, and they're troubled, and they're frightened, we're told. And Jesus, to allay their fears, says, no, it's me. Look at my hands and my feet. Touch me, he says. And then, uh, as if to underline it even more, it says they're, they're, they're disbelieving, they're not sure, but Jesus says, is there anything here to eat? And they give Jesus a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it. So Luke's gospel makes it really clear that Jesus wants to, to, to calm the fears of his disciples. I am not a ghost. You don't need to be afraid. You're being haunted. And so that's a really important reason. But here's the thing. Luke takes great pains to write all these things down. And he could easily have said, well, the disciples were frightened, but Jesus reassured them and they stopped being frightened. Why so much detail for future readers to hear that Jesus physically showed himself and did the same thing that we do with our bodies, which is to fill it with nourishment? It's very tempting for us, I think, as Christians to look at passages like that and focus on the spiritual element and forget that Christ being bodily present in front of them is actually making an important statement. A statement that is, in fact, something that all Christians need to hold on to. What Jesus was doing there is not only allaying their fears, which would have passed away and don't necessarily mean that much to us. We're not seeing a ghost in front of us. Jesus comes and is risen bodily because I believe one of the most important things the resurrection tells us, and Jesus' ministry tells us, is that God calls us to love what is particular in front of us and not simply what we wish we were supposed to love. Jesus is the person who walks with them, talks with them, eats with them, teaches them. Jesus asks them to follow Jesus himself and not simply the memory of what they thought Jesus was or the hope of what Jesus would be. 
Many times throughout Christian history, they've tried to downplay the bodily resurrection. Uh, Gnostic Christians very early on thought, well, the body doesn't matter much, right? Because after all, we die and our spirits rise, so don't worry about what you do with your body. Modern Christians often think, well, it's hard for people to believe Jesus rose from the dead, so why not just get rid of theirs? But the challenge Jesus gives, however, to his disciples and is underlined is that I want you not to love what you think I am. I want you to love who I really am. It's not a mistake that when Jesus says, I'm risen from the dead, he doesn't just say, touch me. He says, touch my hands and my feet, the places where I was crucified. When he speaks to them in the scriptures about what I was supposed to do, he says, didn't the scriptures say I was crucified, dead, buried, and risen? Jesus is encouraging his disciples to take on the shape of ministry that Jesus himself had and not the ministry they wish he had. Think back to the many ways in which Jesus' disciples found themselves disappointed with him. Their disappointment with Jesus almost always came about because Jesus lived a life of service rather than the life of glory they wanted him to have. Think, for example, about the days before Jesus is crucified. James and John are two of his disciples, and they have a very forceful mother who wants good things for her sons. So what does she do? She takes Jesus aside one day and says, Jesus, I have a small request for you. I want my sons, James and John, to sit at your right hand and at your left hand on thrones of glory when you come into your kingdom. Small request, right? What does she want out of him? Jesus, you're going to become the great Messiah that everybody looks up to. I want my sons to get a little bit of that greatness. But what does Jesus do? He disappoints them and says, only if they're willing to take the cup that I'm drinking. What's the cup? The cup of suffering and death. Or think of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He gathers with them for the Seder meal, the Passover meal. And Jesus says about what's to happen. And then what does he do? He puts on a towel, starts washing their feet. And what does Peter do? Does he say, what a great example, Jesus, you're setting? No. He says, Jesus, never will you touch my feet. Why? Because this is what slaves do. I don't want to do this and follow a person who lives and acts like a slave. But Jesus says, unless you uh, let me wash you, you have no part in me. And he gets up after doing it and says, what I've done for you, you must do for others. That didn't go down so well. Or think about Jesus in the garden when he gets arrested. What does Jesus do? Does he fight? No. Peter impetuously pulls out his sword and lops off a guy's ear. And Jesus says, put it away. And he heals the man's ear. Or think of how Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem, has that crowd waving, Hosanna to the son of David. They are looking forward to the Messiah coming and giving a good round thrashing to the Romans. Now it's time for us to rise up and have our victory. How interesting that in just a few days later, many of the people who were in that crowd crying out for Jesus were crying out for his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Why? Jesus didn't turn out to be the Messiah they wanted. When Jesus appears to his disciples, he is saying, this is the Messiah you have, not necessarily the one you want. You want to follow me into eternal life? You want to follow me into living out God's kingdom? Follow the Messiah you were given and not the Messiah that lives in your head. Make no mistake, Jesus doesn't downplay the importance of spirituality. He, he goes into the desert as he begins his ministry to pray with his Father. He also speaks about the importance of prayer. He also talks about how you don't worry about the things you eat or drink because instead you should focus and seek first the kingdom of God and all these things God will give to you. He doesn't say spend all your time on material things, but I do think Jesus says you are in a deep, 
deep misunderstanding if you think all the Christian life is about is simply following what you think is right. Instead, it is following the actual Jesus who actually loved people who weren't easy to love and who actually laid down his life in sacrifice for people that he might not have necessarily been pleased with all the time, but laid down his life for the people that God gave him to serve and to love. And I think that's a deeply important thing for us to hold on to because I would say that in our modern world, one of the deepest temptations we have is to try and live out our spiritual life according to what we want instead of living out the spiritual life according to what God actually places in front of us. And why that's so tempting in the modern world is that we are confronted almost constantly with the temptation to live in a world of fantasy instead of the actual world that God has placed us in. I'll give you a simple example of how that works. When's the last time you went to the dentist's office and sat in the waiting room? Now, of course, you're going to get a bodily reality there, right? Because you're waiting for a root canal, and that's pretty bodily. But you know what I've noticed so often nowadays is how rare it is in waiting rooms, wherever you are, that people actually talk to each other. You ever notice that? They've all got a little screen in front of them. Three seconds of boredom, and instead of dealing with the reality of the people in the waiting room with me, I'm going to live in the fantasy world of Twitter or social media or find out what's happening uh, somewhere in, uh, in Netflix or something like that. Instead of actually interacting with the people in front of us, what are we always tempted to do? To fly off to some fantasy world where we interact with people we will never actually meet. Or think, for example, about life here in the suburbs. I love Barhaven. There's so many wonderful things about it. I love the school my children go to. I think some of the parks are really fantastic. I also like that I, I uh, live, I'm able to live close to where I work. I love much about Barhaven, but it also has some of those characteristics of modern suburban life that we have come accustomed to, but in fact, work against reality. I'm thinking back, I was thinking back to when dinosaurs roamed the earth back in the 1970s when I was a child. And one of the things I noticed was, as I'm looking back to my childhood, I knew my neighborhood backwards and forwards. You know why? Because every summer, instead of me having lots of things to do, because there was either soap operas or game shows on television, and my parents were busy and couldn't entertain me, you know what I did? I got on my bike and roamed the neighborhood all over the place. And I would go to check on my friend Derek's house, but oh, he's on vacation right now, so then I'd go and, and ride my bike uh, several blocks over to my, to my friend Chad's house and see if he's around, and then maybe go jump on his trampoline for a while and do one thing or another. I knew my neighborhood backwards and forwards because I actually went around physically throughout my neighborhood and knew it. I think, however, to today. I actually don't know most of the street names around my neighborhood. I don't know what it's like, or I don't know what the houses look like just behind me because I never walk around in it. And so often we find that in our modern neighborhoods, not only do we not know the physical topography, we don't know anybody who lives on our block. How many of us, uh, honestly, if we, if we look at our neighbors, think, I know nothing about them whatsoever? Or I look at the, the, the different ways in which the, the suburbs are laid out, and I, and I say to myself, I want to go do something really fun. So I, I, I text a friend in Orleans, and we go off and drive somewhere downtown, and we go to a restaurant or something but never actually interact with the people that we live with, that we're up against on a regular basis. How often it is that we live in this fantasy world that the suburbs allows us to live in, in which we get in our car and go to work, 
and we get in our car and come back home, and we drive right into the garage, and we go not even walking outside, but walk through the garage door straight into our house so that we can Netflix and chill for a little while. We live in a fantasy world in so many ways in which, yes, there's good things, sometimes we do need to relax, but in so many ways where we don't have to actually confront the people right in front of us. Jesus stands right in front of his disciples and says, this is the Messiah you're presented with, will you love him? Jesus stands in front of his disciples and says, hands were pierced, feet were pierced. This is the way the Messiah has shown you to live. Will you live this way as opposed to the way you wish you could live? He confronts them with that reality right in front of their faces, and we often avoid being confronted with the reality of our neighbors and the particular needs they have, the particular needs of the people around us, and the particular relationship we have with the physical environment we live in. That is a hallmark of the modern world. And we feel deeply and desperately rootless. I know I keep hammering on in this, but the sense of loneliness and isolation that pervades the modern world is incredible. And how many people feel that there's no one they actually can turn to? How many people feel lost? And how many people feel this wave of anxiety building up around them when they consider the world? Because we feel as if we're pinballs battered around instead of people who live embedded in a community. I think one of the most important lessons we get from this gospel lesson is to say, will we start taking seriously the particularities and the uniqueness of the people around us and the place around us? And realize that when God calls us to live as Christians, he doesn't simply call us to live a kind of spiritual ecstasy or simply a general kind of love. It is no mistake that when Jesus says, what are we to do? The highest laws, it's to love God. Yes, be connected with our Lord, but also to love our neighbor as ourselves. And a neighbor is a very specific thing. Think of that story of the Good Samaritan. He doesn't say, what does my neighbor just generally love? He loves the person he runs across and helps this broken person in the ditch. Our challenge is to fulfill what we've been talking about in our mission statement, to embody Christian faith, to set down roots in the modern world of Barhaven and actually love the actual people that God places across our path. What's so wonderful is, is that this is in fact a way that brings true life. For when the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, he didn't simply say, here's a list of rules to follow with drudgery. Instead, he says, this is the way of abundant and wonderful life. Jesus doesn't just show up and say, here's the rules. He says, you will get power from on high. Your Holy Spirit will come and embody and strengthen you, give you the grace and the power to love as I love. And you will find yourself in an abundant life as a result. So as I think about what challenge this lays before us, I think that there are very practical things that this tells us to do. And I'm going to give you a few suggestions. Here's one thing that I think helps us embody the faith that Christ has shown us, to take seriously the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that means to start taking seriously the bodies that God places across our path. Here's a simple example. We come to church each week, right? Maybe not every week, and sometimes we can't make it because of weather or one other thing. How many people in our church do we know the names of? How many of us do we know what kind of job they have? Do they have kids? Where do they live? What are the hobbies in their life? Maybe one of the things that Christ is saying is is to say, take seriously the fact that you have very particular people who run across your path every week, and these are the ones I want you to love. Not just feel love about the universe, but to love the particular people in front of you. Think about your children. 
How interesting it is that Jesus says that anyone who wishes to enter the kingdom must become like one of these little ones. How interesting it is that God has said, here is something you need to look at in order to enter my kingdom, and I've got four little examples running around the house. How often do I interact with them and ask myself, what is God showing me through these little kids about what it is to be his disciple? How easy is it for me when I get up in the morning and I think it's like herding cats? How can I get them all into this, this breakfast table, feed them and get them out of here? How can I unload the dishwasher and how can I do this and how can I do that? What if each morning I sat down and said, you know, during breakfast, instead of me doing a thousand different things that keep me distracted, I sit down and I ask one of them, what are you learning in math class? Why do you enjoy going to dance each week? What have your friends been doing lately? And are you looking forward to your girl guide meeting or whatever the case is? Not just am I feeding you and doing general parent things, but I take you seriously as an individual. Or to ask ourselves about the people we share a cubicle with at work. How often do we talk nothing except work and the thing that needs to be done? Do we know if they're married, if they have kids? Do we know if they're caring for an ailing parent or what their likes and interests are? So rarely do we treat people as individuals and instead we tend to sort of efface all of that and just say goodwill and amicability and forget that there is something real and unique about each person placed across our path and we need to take it seriously. But here's another and my, my last challenge. The last challenge is not just to interact with people, but also to interact with the bodies that God has given us. How interesting it is that Jesus chooses to do something as mundane as eat. Think about that flavor and how it is that when you break bread with another person and enjoy a meal, so much of it is in fact wonderful because you're enjoying the food. Think about the ways our bodies interact with the world and how often our modern world encourages us to sort of sit and watch television uh, or watch something on our screens instead of actually doing something with our bodies. Here's a suggestion. Next time you want to sit down and want to Netflix and chill, instead think, why don't I put up that shelf that my wife has been nagging me about so much? Use your body to do something constructive to beautify your house. Or when this weather, if it ever changes, and we actually do get real spring, and you look out and you think everything seems drab and great, why not get yourself down on your knees in your front yard, work the dirt, and plant something that will make your neighborhood more beautiful? Or next time, you want to, uh, to, to spend time on the internet instead of doing some activity, why not phone up your son and say, hey, can I take your daughter out and push her on the swings at the park? That sense that not only am I talking and listening, I'm using my body and allowing her to use her body and to enjoy what it's like to be an embodied person. I think what God wants of us is not just a list of rules. He wants to empower, to inspire, to encourage but remember, he wants to inspire and encourage that we actually act in this world to make our world a better place, to interact with the real people he's given to us, interact with the real environment he's given to us. Turn to Christ. Listen to what he says. Accept his spirit. Let it animate you, but then go and act. And find in the act of serving the particular people and the particular place God has put you in. Embodying Christian faith, you will find yourself rooted and no longer the person was cast about by every little thing, but instead have a sense of place, a sense of purpose, and a sense that I am truly an important person in God's kingdom.
for he is using me in great ways to brighten the lives of the people around me and to brighten the environment he has placed me in. How great a privilege it is to be a person who houses God's Holy Spirit for the goodness of the world around us. We're not purposeless. Instead, we're people who have been given great, great, wonderful things, great purposes, because God will use us to build up his kingdom in concrete ways in this world. With that, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for all you give to us. You give us many teachings, but we forget sometimes that the good news of your resurrection is more than a general good news or a group of teachings. It's more than something that is just spiritual. It's bodily. We are spirits and bodies melded in one. Help us to remember and, and, and remember that because you were raised bodily, it helps us to remember that the bodies of the people around us and the physical reality of the space around us matters. Help us not just to love in a general way, but help us to love the very neighbors you place in front of us and to love them in ways that benefits them in which we're called to serve them and not just serve our own needs. But help us also to be attentive to our neighborhoods and the environments in which we live. Help us to feel a desire to make it beautiful, to participate in its beauty, and to use our bodies so that the physical things of this world are blessed. Lord, we love you and we are grateful, Lord, that you came not just to redeem and change our minds, not just to renew our spirits, you came to renew our bodies and make them instruments of glory. Help us to appreciate this and to live it day by day so that we, Lord, might truly live out your kingdom and let your kingdom be glorified and spread in this little outpost of the world called Barhaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.